Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. My friends, what is going on? Welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James, and I'm super pumped to be here with you all today. How we doing, my friend? Slide into the booth. What can we get you at the diner? You want a hot chocolate? You want some whipped cream on top of that hot chocolate? I bet you do. You look fancy. You're a fancy person, aren't you? That's fine. Get into it. I'm here for it, friends. It's also hot chocolate season, which I'm excited about. I'm not a coffee drinker. A lot of people like coffee. I don't like coffee. People think that's weird about me. But as you can tell, I'm naturally obnoxious. I don't need more caffeine, y'all. I woke up like this. So anyway, I'm super pumped to hang out with you in the diner today. We have Desi Garcia coming out and hanging out with us. I've met her via Instagram, but we've never really met in person. So I'm really excited to get to know her because she does some incredible work. Let me tell you a little bit about Desi. Desi Garcia is a mom, a wife, a survivor, an advocate, counselor, crisis worker, trauma expert, podcaster, and public speaker. She is the founder of Candle in a Dark Room. She's a survivor of child physical and sexual abuse. And Candle in a Dark Room is an incredible organization. Uh, they offer many things. They help survival survivors, excuse me, of physical and sexual trauma, as well as mental health that stems from trauma. They also help other traumas such as grief, adoption, and more. Desi goes into court with victims around the country to face their perpetrators and help them prepare before, support them during and after. And for the whole long term, uh, she is an incredible individual. She helps take she helps survivors take the power back and take the proper steps in healing their trauma. I'm really excited to work with Desi today and get to know her more and have you get to know her as well. So let's bring her out right now. This badass woman. What's going on, Desi? How are you today? Hello. I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited that you wanted to be had. I'm yes. pumped. Thanks for reaching out and uh, and connecting with me on Instagram. And yes. uh, I'm, I'm so pumped that we're connected today. Me too. I'm so glad. I love I love all your stuff that you always post and all your stuff. You think you're hilarious. So I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Thank you, fam. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Desi, this show is called Diner Talks with James. And so we got to start it off proper. I'm wondering, late at night, do you have any late night guilty eating pleasures? Now, I know you're based in Salt Lake, so I don't think the diner game is strong out there. But maybe we got IHOPs. Maybe we got Denny's. Maybe there's something else out there that you're doing that I'm cafe Rio. Maybe that's open up late. <laughs> um, but uh, what, what's your, what's your late night move? Ooh, it's, we, so we don't have a ton of diners here. We have a few, but like nothing, nothing like some of those other States have around us. I wish we'd had more cause I love diners. Um, but I would probably, I, the thing that people do when they like go out and we're drinking and things like that, we like to hit up what's called Betos, which is like a Rancheritos. It's like a Mexican quick food, Mexican place. And they have mm -hmm. like carne asada, nachos and things like that so when i've like gone out with my friends and i'm ready to come home and crash i would love to get those nachos from there so that's probably my guilty but guilty pleasure desi i am 
ashamed to say this because it means I'm not hanging out with the right people, but you are <laughs> the first person who says they do nachos late at night. And I think that's a great move. That's so funny. It's not <laughs> often, but I mean, I don't go, I don't do much very often at night, but when I do, that's my, that's definitely a go-to. You can't like, can't go wrong with nachos, especially carne asada ones. They're, Seriously, they're amazing. Uh, so. Carne asada is so good. And Betos, right? that's a spot in salt and you're in Salt Lake, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Great town, underrated town. A lot of people are confused by Utah, and for some reasons I understand, but for the most part, you got to get out there and meet the people. It is. It's actually, and it's changed so much, the dynamic over here since, you know, just since the last at least several years. It's mm -hmm. a lot different than when I grew up. It was very um, more sheltered and, you know, a lot of the LDS community and things like that. When people think Utah, Salt Lake, they think, you know, the LDS, the Mormons, all that, which they are here. But honestly, I feel like nowadays there's more non-Mormons than there are Mormons in Utah. So mm -hmm. it's definitely changed. Um, and I love Utah for, you know, many different reasons. Uh, I hate the snow. So that's one thing I don't like. But um, <laughs> I'm definitely in the wrong state for that because, you know, Utah is known for their snowboarding and skiing and all that. Mm -hmm. But um, I love Utah, at least where I live. I, li I feel like it's a safe pretty safe like place to be um I grew up I not grew up excuse me I lived in Albuquerque for a year when I was 17 because I don't know I just after I got out of rehab I thought it would be cool so I decided to move there by myself at 17 and um that was interesting and that is a whole <laughs> other life out there let's just say in Albuquerque so it made me appreciate Salt Lake so much more because I didn't realize how sheltered I was that I hadn't mm. seen like I immediately, again, where I live, I don't see people like shh, doing drugs and doing things like that. And like in Albuquerque, it's just right there in front of you all the time. And so it's definitely weird. Um, we do have obviously the stricter like laws with alcohol, which can sometimes be frustrating, but other times it's kind of nice because we don't have to, I feel like it's not as, you don't have to worry about as much of like DUIs and like those type of, you know what I mean? Yeah, things sure, like yeah. my kids. So it has its pros and cons, but for the most part, I do like Utah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I hear that. I hear that. Yeah, I've never had a bad time in Salt Lake. One of my favorite restaurants in the country, a place called the Copper Onion. Ooh, um, that's a good. Yep, that's is, a great uh, one. Yeah, their their burgers are fire. Strong, strong burgers yeah. out there for yep. sure. I'll do anything <laughs> for a good burger, Desi. You can write that down. Um, <clears throat> I. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I love that. That's awesome. And nachos are the move. I have a friend. And I want to make fun of him publicly now, if that's okay with you, Desi. <laughs> yeah. um, whenever he makes, unless, unless this is the way you eat them, in which case I'll stop making fun of people like this. But whenever <laughs> he makes nachos, he sends me a picture because he lays them out chip by chip and tops each one of them chip by chip, as opposed to just doing the tower of nachos. Oh, no, I do the tower. Thank it you. probably benefits a little bit, though, because he probably has cheese and stuff on each chip, where most of the time, like, when you eat nachos with a big pile, once the pile's gone, then you just have chips, right? So it's kind of, I kind of see his point, but I feel like that would take a lot of time. That's fine. That's podcast guest Sam Davidson, by the way, friends. Feel free to judge him online and publicly. <laughs> yeah. um, <clears throat> and Desi, you're a better person than I am for taking the high road on that. So that's fine too. Um, <laughs> So I love this, Desi. Your name is Desi Garcia. And it's actually uh, you were Desiree. Telling me, oh, you were telling me. Oops, sorry. I go go by Desi. No, I was just going to say it's actually Desiree, um, but I go by Desi. Okay, perfect. Desiree Garcia. Um, and you were telling me a little bit uh, about it before we got on the air. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what is, what's your, what's your origin story? Where, where is your family from? Where, tell me about your last name, Garcia. Um, okay. So my, my maiden last name is actually Martell. 
Um, that was my, you know, my, my dad's name. Um, he is from San Salvador mm -hmm. and he was born, raised there for the first parts of his life. And then he moved to San Francisco when he was a, like, like a young boy. I'm not sure exactly the age um, and grew up in San Francisco and then moved to Salt Lake. So uh, I'm half El Salvadorian. And then also my mom is Spanish. So a lot of my family is um, Spanish and yeah. So that's, I'm just, a, I just, I'm Latina. That's the way, best way to explain it because <laughs> I have a little bit of everything in me, I feel like. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that something that you have pride about? Like, do you have pride about being El Salvadorian or Spanish? Is that, is that something that, that you are excited about? Anything you do culturally around it? Um, I love, you know, I love being like, I love my Spanish culture. I love um, the food. I love all of it. You know, El Salvadorian food. There's this thing called a papusa. I don't know if you've ever had Papusas one. Papusas are so good. Um, those are from San Salvador and they are the best thing that's ever happened. And then um, also <laughs> El Salvadorian tamales, which are different than Mexican tamales. They're mm. actually wrapped in a banana leaf. And so they're like moist. They're not dry like um, yeah. the Mexican ones. And so anyway, those are really good. Um, so the food is probably my, my favorite part. We just had um, Thanksgiving and we do what's called a uh, pons compabo, which is, it's basically a turkey sandwich, a Salvadorian turkey sandwich. And you put like a red sauce over it and it's so good. So pons compabo. Um, and that is the traditional thing that we have every Thanksgiving. Um, I wish I had a picture of it, but yeah, it's basically a big roll turkey. And then you put this like, salad that's like marinated with like cucumbers and like I don't know all like beets and things like yeah. that in it and then you put the red sauce on top that cooks with the turkey and you eat it and it's it's amazing that sounds like it slaps I gotta it's I gotta be so honest good. the turkey this may I, may I may get called out for this and that's fine y'all can come for me but <laughs> The turkey is my least favorite part of the Thanksgiving meal Same. I'm not it's a big always turkey. dry yeah <laughs> exactly that's funny i always that's why i always eat ham so i have the traditional thanksgiving with my mom's family and then i have which you know still has like chili verde and stuff like that yeah. you know for the spanish in us but for the most part we we just do the traditional but my dad's side is the good like i said the sauce and stuff and so i like that turkey because it's moist but mm -hmm. other than that yeah turkey's just dry i'd rather have ham any day yeah, I want one of these sandwiches you're talking about. I need the one yeah. of these sandwiches. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> good. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Uh, I love that. Yeah, and you're right. Papooses are so good. Um, yes. So that's awesome. So, but you yourself grew up in Salt Lake. You're born and raised in the Salt Lake area. Yes. Yeah. When you were younger, Desi, what uh, what, what did you want to be? Tell me. Tell me about young young Desi. Ooh, um, young Desi, that's a little bit harder for me just because, you know, we'll go into my story a little bit later. Um, I don't ever, I, I kind of would go back and forth. I didn't really think too much about being an adult when I was younger. And I know that sounds mm -hmm. kind of weird, but when I did, um, at first I wanted to be a teacher and then that's kind of like the last thing I remember of what, what I wanted to be when I was a kid. Um, I was very shy, very timid, which is so funny because I'm so opposite from that now. Um, I, you know, I was kind of just kept to myself. I didn't have a ton of friends. I had a couple, you know, I kind of was picked on because I was like, you know, the little Spanish chubby girl in Utah with all the, you know, <laughs> white, blonde, skinny girls here. And so I didn't fit in very much. Um, I, I definitely was kind of an outsider. I had, you know, a couple best friends and my best friend who's still my best friend to this day since fourth grade. Um, 
And if it wasn't for her beating up some of my bullies, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where I'd be. So yeah, I definitely am a lot different than, than little Desi. Um, but yeah, I think I just, I loved, um, kind of just, I don't know, I loved playing with Barbies and I loved just kind of the basic kid stuff. I just loved, I had, I have three brothers, um, mm-hmm. and a sister. And so I loved playing with my siblings and things like that. So yeah. Yeah. Shout out to this best friend of yours taking care of the bullies out here. That's a ride or <laughs> yeah. die right there. She is. She's my ride or die for sure. Like I said, we've been best friends since fourth grade. And I had a bully who would always um, slap me in the back of the head on the school bus. And I just would go home and cry every day because I like didn't like her. And she was so mean to me. And she would like tell me that she, oh, I think I just messed up my, oh, there you go. Um, she would like tell me that she was like a witch and like would like, watch me sleep in my, through my window. Just weird stuff. And I remember at school she came up behind me and like pushed me and all I remember is my best friend grabbing her and I her head went into the double doors and that's all I remember (laughs) so (laughs) she never bothered me after that you know I had to defend myself once with her on the bus after my mom finally told me that if I don't hit her back I was going to get in trouble and so I she hit me in the back of the head and I told her I was so I remember being so terrified because I was so shy and I was like if you hit me again I'm going to hit you back and so she hit me again in the head. And then I, I guess I knocked her out or something on the bus. And then, yeah, that's all. And she never bothered me after that. Those took those two things. And then that was the last thing, but yeah, those bullies, man, they, they were rough back that back in the day. So luckily my best friend had my back. A casual TKO on the bus to stop the bullying. I like it. Desi. This is why, this is, this is why you got to keep your eye on the quiet person, right? There's always, there's a fire underneath there and it's going to come out one way or the other. Yeah, but you push that button. It takes a lot for me to go there. Even to this day, I'm your best friend. But yeah, you don't take it too far because Mama Bear will come out and yeah. defend who I need to defend. <laughs> yeah. And in the meantime, you got your best friend who's going after people on the front side of stuff. So exactly. Yep, That's exactly. It. And she's still my best friend. So I can just call her like, hey, we got a problem. <laughs> got a problem. <laughs> yeah. So she's still got my back. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Uh <laughs> Those uh, those childhood friendships are always so beautiful, but sometimes they don't. We don't find friends that round the corners of life with us, yeah. right? You know, even 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 if it's just going to you know going through puberty together and then going through a transition to you know going to New Mexico for a year, um, yeah. and then you know things like that. Like not everybody rounds the corners with us. So that's really cool that uh, that that she's been by your side. What's her name? So her name's Mindy, and yeah, she. Uh... She's been by my side. I remember when I called her when I was in New Mexico and I met my husband and she was not at first. She was like, who's this like kid that you met in New Mexico? And she's always been very protective of me. Um, and she was about ready to hop on a plane and come check him out before I, before I went any further and like moved in with them or anything. So she's always been very protective. Um, now her husband and my husband are like best friends and it's a great dynamic. Our daughters are the same age. So yeah, you, you definitely, I, you know, I've had a lot of friends, great friends, but my, again, my, situation has always been kind of complicated and so it takes a good friend to kind of stick you stick through all of that and she has stepped through my side through all of that and so I'm super grateful for her and she's my only like you know friend that's stuck through everything with me so I, I'm super grateful for her so that's beautiful yeah well, shout out to Mindy uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> uh, that's awesome that's awesome you know you mentioned that uh, you didn't think a lot about being what you would be as an adult or what adulthood would look like for you. Mm -hmm. Now that is 
that's a, that's a tough sentence to hear. Um, and it's mm. because you went through some tough stuff. Right. Um, uh, if you, if you'd be willing, I'd, I'd love to, to, to hear a little bit about what, you know, what, what kept you from dreaming, what kept you from, you know, uh, whatever it was, right. Wanted to be a veterinarian or a Marine biologist. Like I wanted to be when I was younger or a, a doctor cool. or a teacher, you know, or, or things like that. What, you know, what was it that kind of, uh, squashed that or didn't yeah. allow that to come out? So, well, you know, to kind of answer that question first, I didn't really think I'd make it honestly to be an adult. So I never, I, I was more of, am I going to live till tomorrow, let alone am I going to make it to be an adult? I never really thought, you know, a lot of kids, a lot of girls, especially grow up and they have their books, the, what they want to do when they get married and they're, you know, want to have kids and this and that. And I don't really remember ever having those, those thoughts until I was like older. Um, so I was actually basically born into trauma um, is the best way I can explain it. My mom and dad were married. They got married very young. My mom was was pregnant with me. They got married when she was, ooh, I don't want to mess it up, but I want to say she was still 17. If not, she had just turned 18 because her birthday September and mine's October 3rd. So either like barely. Um, my dad was, I think, two years older than her. So he was 19. Um, and you know, my dad had went through a lot of abuse as a child, a physical, sexual abuse, a lot of things. And so my dad had a lot of issues and a lot of anger issues. And so him and my mom's relationship, you know, was very toxic and abusive. And I saw a lot of things that I shouldn't have seen at, you know, three, four years old, two years old, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I had a little brother who's three years younger than me. And I remember sitting in the closet holding him when they were fighting one time and like trying to protect him. And just things that you don't, you shouldn't go through as a kid, basically, you shouldn't be, you know, you should be able to just play in your room, play with your Barbies and not have to worry about those things. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, but luckily, they kind of both realized it and got divorced um, when I was six. And that's when my mom met my um, old stepfather, and then my dad got remarried as well. Um, my stepmother was not nice to me. Um, so I didn't really like going to my dad's very often. And then my mom's um, new husband, he I don't remember kind of from six to eight, I don't, I have like a very vague memories. Um, the only like couple memories I have one is where I guess I, I was watching Lion King or something and he went outside and I locked him out and then I turned Lion King up really loud and locked him out of the apartment. And like, he had to like bang on the door. He like waited until my mom got home from work. I like left and walked outside. I don't remember very much <laughs> of that. I just remember bits and pieces of that. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know if I had a radar. I don't know if I was just a six-year-old brat. I'm not sure exactly. Mm -hmm. um, but I do know that around eight years old um, is the first memory I have. Again, from my childhood, I have very bits and pieces missing. Well, big chunks of my childhood missing um, from my memory. But at eight years old, it's from the first memory I have of when my stepfather was sexually abusing me. Um, it was a typical grooming, molestation. And then from there, it turned into full child sexual abuse. Um, and that went on until I was about 15 years old. Mm. Um, it became, you know, it was every once in a while to every week to every day to I would get checked out during school. I would, you know, he would tell my teachers I had a dentist appointment and then I would go and then he'd bring me back to school and I'd have to finish my day at school. And weird things like that, um, that happened for years of my life. And because of what happened, I, you know, he was also very physically abusive. Um, he would punch me so hard that I'm pretty sure I, I never got it confirmed, but I'm pretty sure I broke my ribs at one point because they still have um, scarring. Um, uh, you know, he would pull pillows over my face so I would pass out and I would come back. I would come 
come back, you know, I don't know how long later, um, punch, punch me in the stomach that I would like lose consciousness, you know, things like that. Um, so I don't remember, I remember like he would hold knives to my throat, you know, lots of different things like that. And so that went on, like I said, until I was about almost 15 because what was happening to me, um, I had a lot of self-destructive behavior, you know, because of my dad and my relationship, my, my biological dad, my real dad, he, I kind of distanced myself from my dad because I think, um, one, my dad was a detective, ironically, a sex crime detective, um, who was, he was a very known detective here in Utah because he did a, the Susan Powell case, helped with the Susan Powell case, a lot mm. of big cases here in Utah. Um, but my dad didn't know what was happening to me. And I, and I, you know, definitely think I pushed my dad out of my life because I didn't want him to figure it out because I was scared. Cause I would, you know, my whole stepdad would threaten that he would kill my dad, that he would kill my mom, bury my brothers alive, things like that. Very, um, threatening. And he was the guy, I mean, for example, he had a tattoo that said no fear. Like he wasn't scared of anything, you know? And so, um, yeah, I didn't really have a relationship with my dad at the time. And so he used that for his, to his advantage, I think. And then like, I don't know, he kind of would use that as an excuse for lots of different things. And so, yeah, um, because of that, all that was going on, I, again, I was doing self-destructive behavior. I had an eating disorder. Um, I was really bad bulimic. And then I would go anorexic. I would go back and forth. Um, again, kind of back to my bullying situation. I was being bullied at home and I was being bullied at school pretty bad. And so I was constantly, and I had gained, I had tried to gain weight on purpose and I would make myself look ugly because I thought he would want, he wouldn't want me more. So if I was like not cute or if I had like was a little chubby or whatever, it was yeah. because I thought I, that, that's how he wouldn't want to hurt me if that was the case. Um, but unfortunately this made me become more of a target at school. And so I just didn't really have a safe place anywhere. Um, so I was, I started cutting, I tried to attempt suicide a couple different times. Um, and then when I, right before I reported it, I had tried, um, a suicide attempt and my school reported it to my mom and it was this whole big thing. Um, a couple weeks later, I had, we had just moved into a house that we had just bought and I had talked my mom into letting me get a um, lock on my door because I was a teenager and felt like I needed to have that space. And that was kind of my excuse to do it. Um, one thing I will say is people always ask, how did your mom not know? Well, he was very abusive to her, but he was also very manipulative. John was a very, very good liar. And he made mm -hmm. me a very good liar to where I was able to go. He would take me, hurt me. And I'd go back to school and laugh and have like, and have a good day at school because I was able to completely shut that part of me off. I think I would completely disassociate from my body. Um, and so I never gave signs of what was happening. I definitely think there were signs now that my mom looks back. She's like, oh my gosh, like, why didn't I question that? Um, that's why I'm a huge advocate to parents to talk to your kids on a regular basis about things and check with them and ask questions. Um, if someone would have asked me, then I probably would have told. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I but I was never asked those questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so then that night, um, I got a lock on my door. I had hit a key at Mindy's house, I remember. I hit a key and then I hit a key somewhere else. I think I took it at school. And um, I heard someone, I heard he was on the other side of my door trying to pick the lock. And that night I remember just freezing and I don't remember much of it. I think, again, I kind of disassociated. Um, I don't remember too much except for, I always say like a higher power took over me, which I feel like it was, you know, for me, I feel like it was God that was just like, we, we do this now or you're not going to make it. Like we got to do this now. And so I got up the next day and I, I didn't sleep a wink that night. 
Um, I had, I've always had really bad insomnia, so I wouldn't sleep anyway. And so, um, I ran to school as fast as I could. And I went and told a teacher, um, this teacher was already like a really good ally for me. She Mm -hmm. had called like the suicide hotline with me. She had seen my um, rope marks from when I had tried to commit suicide. She had, she had seen lots of different things. And so she was kind of a space I knew would help me if I needed it. So I went around to school as fast as I could, um, told one of my best, one of my close friends at school and had her go with me to tell my teacher. Um, my teacher went and reported it to the school counselor right away. And the school counselor told her that I was lying and probably just being a drama queen. Um, because, because uh, yeah, and this is a school counselor. So, um, I remember being, I remember my teacher luckily was like fought for me and told her that's not our job to figure that out. If, if this is lie or not, our jobs to report it. And that's all that we can do. And so she did, um, they reported it. And then I remember the detective coming and I was waiting in the office and she came up and she goes, look, your teacher told me that this is what's happening to you, but your school counselor doesn't think it's true. I need you to know, like, this is a huge accusation and I need to know if it's true, because if it's not, then I'll leave right now and you won't get in trouble. But if it is happening, then I'll help you. And I guess I, I don't know if I started crying. I don't remember if I like her well, something in my face. I just remember telling her, I promise that this is happening. And if you send me home, he'll kill me. And I remember she grabbed my hand and she um, just started to her eyes teared up and she was like, okay, I believe you. And that was the beginning of me, you know, kind of being free. Um, he wasn't arrested right away. He, they didn't have proof because I, nothing had happened in a few days. So they didn't have any like evidence. They didn't have any proof of anything. And so um, I had to take a lie detector test. I ended up passing the lie detector test. He took a lie detector test and he did not pass, but he did not fail. His was like inconclusive, which blows my mind. But now knowing what I know about psychology and you know how our brain works, I think that he believed his own lies. He believed that he wasn't hurting me. He yeah. believed that he loved me. He believed those things. And so in his head, he didn't hurt me. And so it's really messed up and it's a full narcissist behavior. But um, yeah, so he ended up being, um, we went to court. I tried testifying. I had a complete meltdown in the courtroom. Um, my mom and dad read a letter to him, um, that, you know, my, my biological dad came back into my life when everything came out and he wrote, he read a letter in court. And I remember he like yelled at him and that like triggered me. And then I just kind of remember losing it in the courtroom from there. Um, so I never testified against him, which kind of sucked because I wasn't able to take that power back, which I now realize is so important. Um, excuse me. Um, so anyway, he ended up being sentenced to three to life. Um, he ended up being in there for a total of 10 years, but only five for what he did to me because the other five was basically, um, he got attempted murder of his cellmate because he like broke his jaw and like how to get his, I don't know. There was some type of major thing in jail that he got. So he got like multiple charges on that. So, um, he's a very violent person, obviously. And so anyway, he ended up spending 10 years there. Well, during the 10 years there, um, while he was there, I, you know, after I reported the abuse, um, I kind of went into a downward spiral, honestly. And I became more self-destructive. I pushed my mom away. I was so angry with my parents, so angry with my mom. I would fight with that. I mean, it was just really bad. I was just really, um, a really hard, like I was just basically losing it. And my parents really didn't know what to do. So mm-hmm. they ended up putting me in a residential treatment program here in Utah, um, part of one of the major hosp- children's hospitals here in Utah. 
And I actually lived there for two years. I was in the residential treatment program for 10 years, or excuse me, for two years, not 10 years, for two years um, from age, I was there from 15 to 17, like right before I, like summer before I turned 18. Um, so yeah, it was two years of being there. And during those two years, I was diagnosed with, um, they thought I had borderline personality disorder, PTSD, major anxiety, this and that. Well, I didn't have um, borderline personality disorder, but what I did end up getting diagnosed with was disassociation identity disorder, which a lot of people, um, so it's less than 2% of the entire world have it. So it's a very not like not common disease or yeah. excuse me, diagnosis. Um, but basically people, when they look up DID, they think multiple personalities. So that's a lot of times what happens. People get multiple personalities to, to help them disassociate themselves from what's actually happening to them. Um, that was not the case for me. I never had multiple personalities. I never have, but what would happen is I would go back into being the age I was during that incident that I was reenacting. So for example, I'd be sitting here and like, I always say, if you ever saw that, so Raven, she, this girl is that old TV show on Disney channel and she would see visions and she would like go off into a daze and then she'd start seeing visions. That's kind of how my therapist would describe it. So I would be sitting there and I would basically just go off into a daze and I'd come back and I would talk like I was eight years old, eight years old. I thought I was eight, eight years old. I acted like I was eight years old. I would sit in the corner and, um, ask for my mom. I was, you know, a child and again, and my body actually thought that this abuse was happening. So I would reenact the abuse. Like I would throw myself on the floor. My face would turn purple in some cases because I thought he was holding a pillow over my head. Um, I wouldn't be able to move my arms because he was holding me down. I'd come out of it and have red marks on my arms because my brain physically thought something happened to me. And mm -hmm. so my body would react if something did. Um, I would stop breathing because I thought my, like my, you know, I someone would punch me in the stomach, weird things that like is not normal, but I would completely reenact situations of abuse. Um, so they ended up having to bring in specialists and all types of different people to figure out what was wrong with me and diagnose me. Um, luckily, you know, I've gotten that under control. I haven't had an episode in years with that. Um, but that was a big part of my teenage years is me having those episodes, I would lose hours of my day, I'd be sitting here talking to my therapist or talking to someone in rehab. And all of a sudden, I'd come out of it. And I'd have 15 people around me and three hours of my day would be gone. Or it was just it was really weird. Um, so yeah, and I and I never remembered what happened either. Like everything I would have I explained to you from it is from what I've heard from therapists and doctors, I've never actually remember or seen an episode that I had. Um, so yeah, it's very rare. Uh, like I said, I ended up getting out when I was 17. And that's when I basically was like, I'm going to move to New Mexico. I'm going to go, you know, um, live with my family that's out there. And I'm going to go out there and I'm just going to figure it out. So I moved out to New Mexico. Um, I ended up meeting my husband there. And for the next about 10 years, I kind of just went through the motions of life. Uh, I started, that's when I started becoming a counselor. I first was a psych tech. And then I kind of just went up the, um, ladder in that and became a counselor. And so for most of my career, people, I was very good at my job. And but people didn't know why people didn't know why I was good at my job, why, like mm. why I was interested in what I did. And, um, you know, why I was interested in working in psych, psych hospitals and um, rehabilitation centers and all of those things. People just thought I was probably like, why does she like that stuff? It's crazy. But I, 
you know, eventually once I started coming out with my story, then people started making sense, um, putting the pieces together. But again, I was very good at living two lives. I had done it my entire life. I had had my life at home and I had my life that's like outside in the public. So I kind of created that narrative of my life forever. Of I had my life with my husband and I went at home, but then I also and then I had my life at work, but then I also had a life of my mental health and all this stuff I was actually internally dealing with. But I never mm. talked about it. I didn't talk about it with my husband. I didn't talk about it. I never went to therapy again. I quit all my medications. I had let, when I left rehab, I left with a freezer bag full of medications. I quit all of them. I just basically just stopped and pretended like that part of my life didn't exist. Um, which, you know, a lot of people say sometimes fake it till you make it. But let me just tell you, it comes back and bites you in the ass at some point if you don't work through it. And that's kind of what happened to me. So um, during the, my husband and I, when we were together, um, first together, I had ended up having, because of the body, the internal body damage I have, I have like scar tissue and lots of different things. I actually had five miscarriages and an ectopic pregnancy that I lost. And so I had a really, I was told I wouldn't be able to have kids, so many different things. Um, I was, thank goodness. I, you know, it was a blessing. I ended up having two kids. Um, I have a nine-year-old son and my daughter's about to turn seven. Um, they're the only two I can have. I ended up having my tubes tied because I almost died after I had my daughter. Um, but they're definitely a, a blessing I wasn't supposed to have. And so I'm super grateful for that. Um, but during those years, I just, again, went through motions of life. I was a good mom. I went to work. I came home. I cooked dinner. It just was very, I just went through life, just not living, but surviving. Right. And so, um, in 2015, I got a call that my stepfather was up for parole and I went to the parole hearing. I wrote, I wrote my victim statement and I actually read it to the court. It was the first time I had ever, I was actually able to read it. And I felt like it was when I actually felt my power back because I was actually telling him what he had done to me and the effects that he had on my life. And I, cause I wasn't able to do that for the first court hearing. So he ended up being released. You know, they didn't really listen to me, but it's okay. That's kind of what happens, unfortunately, with the justice system. Um, he ended up being released. And from the, be from the beginning, when he was first put in jail, I remember telling my therapist when I was rehab, I just know it's not over. I just know it's not over. He's going to come after me. Something in me, and I don't know how to explain it, but something always in my soul knew it wasn't the end. And so um, fast forward to 2019. Before that, let me, go, let me go back and say, before that, I would think that I would see him. I would like be at Costco and I would be like, oh my gosh, I swear I just saw him. I just saw John, like what the heck? Or I would be driving and I would think I saw him. And so many different things that I was like, I swear I saw him. Um, I told my dad, who again was a retired police a detective, and he would be like, why would he come after you again? Like, he's out living his life. Like, don't worry, you know, it's not him. He's not coming after you anymore. Whatever. Well, he's actually the father of my little brother. So I was like, well, what if he's looking for my brother? This and that. Well, anyway, long story short is people basically just said it was my PTSD and that I was imagining everything and that it wasn't the case. Um, so again, fast forward 2019, I had just started my podcast in that March. And that's when my husband, you know, my husband came up, came home one day and was like, I, I know what you can do. You need to do a podcast. I just listened to the Elon Musk podcast. You need to do one. And I had never listened to a podcast before. And I was like, what the heck's a podcast? Like I had always been told, you know, anytime I started telling my story and I would tell it, I would leave jaws open of, oh my gosh, you need to tell yours. You need to write, write a book. You need to 
do a movie like this has to be some type of story that you need to get out there but I never knew what the what the like nothing felt right um so when my husband said that I was like okay let's kind of see how that goes so I got like my old um like HP laptop a little old microphone that I had I think it was like actually the earpiece of like the, the string that had the little mic on it not good for not good <laughs> product at all not not good quality but whatever um and I just went in my closet and I recorded in my first episode and my story is season one but it's episode one two four and eight because my story is long so those are the story that those are the episodes for my story that's on my podcast if you go back and listen to it um but I recorded the first episode and released it in March of 2019 and my first episode went pretty viral I had thousands of views within the first 24 hours it was insane and I remember being so confused and like looking at it and being like what in the hell just happened like I thought it was just going to be like the people I went to school with and like my family and like you know it was I did not think it was going to be like go out there I had no I, I also had no idea what I was doing I just uploaded it on anchor and kind of just to see what would happen you know yeah, yeah and it went viral and I was like what in the hell just happened and so that's when I kind of had the conclusion of like okay I need to tell the rest of my story and then I'm going to start giving the mic to other people because they other survivors need I realized that like survivors needed this outlet like when that episode went viral within the first two days I had hundreds of messages from people saying you just gave me the strength to tell my parents what's happened what happened to me when I was a kid you just told mm -hmm. gave me the strength to talk about my story for the first time in 15 years um things like that that I was like in tears like mind blown because I was like holy crap this is so needed why don't we have anything like this? And, you know, now there's more podcasts and stuff. But when I started a couple of years ago, podcasts, it just kind of became a thing. So it wasn't popular yet. And so it just, it kind of blew up. I had celebrities contacting me. I had people like, that were like, Hey, I want to be on your podcast and tell my story and just crazy things. And so I realized like, this is my purpose. And I always, since I was younger, and I know this might sound weird, but I, when you say what I envisioned, when I finally got to that point where I realized I was going to live, I remember thinking I have a, like a purpose. Like when I was being abused, I remember this one specific time praying and thinking, why am I going through this? Like, why are you letting this happen to me? I'm so like, what did I do? Like, what do I need to do with this story? And being kind of confused about it. Um, and then I, after everything came out, I realized and I had a vision and I don't know if it's a vision or dream. I really don't know what it was. But I had some type of dream that I was on stage and there were thousands, like hundreds and thousands of people and they were all holding a book with my face on it. And I remember being like, I'm supposed to do something big with my story and like just knowing what my purpose was. And so when my podcast came out, I was like, this is my purpose. Like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Give people their, 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 their voice back and you know, all that. Um, but then as my story went on, I realized, and then I'll kind of get to what happened in 2019. So in July, 2019, I get a phone call from the FBI and they say, Hey, I don't, you know, I don't know if you know that John was rearrested. And I was like, yeah, I was informed he was rearrested. And they're like, well, um, he was rearrested for child pornography. Wasn't necessarily surprised just because he was always in a pornography. And I have always mm -hmm. said pornography was a huge part of my abuse because I feel like it's what kind of got in his head to make him think that what he was doing was okay. Yeah. And so um, I, so when the, when he told me child pornography, I was like in my head thinking, I'm not surprised, but he's 
crossed the he's crossed the line. He's officially a sicko, right? And like kind of just like it didn't make sense to me. But and here I was working at a huge hospital here in Utah as a crisis worker, where I would go basically on scene after someone was raped or someone who's trying to commit suicide. I was my job to talk them off the ledge. Like I was in some pretty traumatic cases. And so here I am putting out my podcast and saving people, right? And trying to mm-hmm. do all this. And then this detective calls and says, well, I don't know how to tell you this, but John had over 200 pictures on his laptop, his phone and his, and his apartment that had, that was pictures of child pornography with your face cut out and put on every single picture. Whoa. Yeah. So he digitally and physically had pictures of me from now, pictures of me on scene of crisis interventions with police on. So he was stalking me like while I was a police on scene, like in the parking lot, walking to my car in the parking garage. Um, there's a picture of me on my front doorstep, pictures of me at the park with my kids, pictures of me at Costco. Dude was following me for a few years and I knew it and I felt it. But I always was told it was my PTSD and not to, you know, don't believe it or whatever. But in my, in my stomach, I, I always tell survivors, if you feel like something's wrong in your gut, you need to look into it. And, you know, sometimes it is just our PTSD. But most of the time, if something's telling you something's wrong, it's because something's wrong. And so he had pictures of me. I was his screensaver on his cell phone. When the police arrested him, they asked him why I was his screensaver on his laptop and cell phone. And he said, because I was his girlfriend. And so... The detective put two and two together and realized that he was so obsessed with me that this couldn't have just been a girlfriend. So he looked up what his original case was that he was arrested for and found out, looked me up on Facebook, realized that was me in the picture and then contacted me. It was very like crazy FBI detective work that they figured out it was me. Um, But yeah, he had a full obsession of me. He had a, um, basically the best way to explain it is like a shrine of me in his apartment. Um, but the detective told me the day he called us that, you know, honestly, all I can say is we're glad that we found him when we did, because his stalking was escalating and what we found in his apartment and in his car, I think he had uh, intentions, other intentions. So I believe that he was planning to abduct me and I don't know what torture me. I have no idea. Um, he had some type of obsession with me in jail. He still does. He tells people and talks about me. He, in court, he told the people that he was excited that I was there supporting him when really I was testifying against him. Um, just, just psychotic, like literally an obsession. Um, and here, this was my stepfather. This is the father, you know, the father of my little brother, my mom's ex-husband. Like just, mm-hmm. this, you know, it's it's sickening when I say it out, when I think about it and say it out loud because it's so messed up, right? Right, yeah. Um, so again, in when this all came out, I was like hit in the face. Cause I did not expect that. Like, yes, I suspected something, but I never suspect suspected this bad. Like this is like lifetime movie network shit, right? Like this is like rated R like crazy movies, but like, don't, this doesn't actually happen in real life stalker shit. Yeah, well, hell yeah. It was happening in my life. And so I was so frustrated. Cause I was like, here I am going to court with victims to face their perpetrators. At this point, I had started that doing podcast episodes, giving people a voice, but yet I'm being victimized all over again. No, I'm not being raped and physically abused anymore, but I'm still being victimized in a whole other messed up way. And so it was a real mind game of me trying to be like, what do I do now? Like, I can't keep going. I'm a fraud. Like, I can't keep telling people to 
survive because he obviously I'm a victim again. Like I was so that story in my head was really messing with me. Um, but I remember a couple like after, you know, being depressed and in bed for about a week, I finally got myself up and I was like, uh-uh, at this, like, I am not going to let him take any more of my life. And that's when I kind of released my other episode and started talking about, it. I ended up being on the news. Um, thought ABC did a whole thing on me. They actually released my story without telling me and we're planning to bombard really? me in court. We're planning to take, we're planning to show up to court and surprise me in court, which is insane to me. Um, I called them and I, they did a whole story and they messed up the story and said, a uh, man who raped a girl in 2004 finds her and stops, totally messed up the story. So I was like, okay, he didn't, it wasn't just a one-time event. And I called and I said, if you're going to tell the story, you're going to tell it right. So I'm going to, so I'm going to do an interview. So I went on there, did an interview, explained the whole situation. Um, again, that went viral because people were mind boggled by that this actually happened that the court system failed me because when I thought that I had seen him at Costco and those other places, I called his parole officer several times and left voicemails and never received a call back. I even called the board of pardons and still never wow. received a call back. So really? if they would have called me back, you know, sooner, this could have stopped a lot sooner than it did. So when I went to court in July last year, I wrote a letter to, to my old stepdad and the court. And I said, you know, if this is, you guys failed me. And this is why, survivors don't come out and tell their story because you say you're going to protect us, but you don't. And so that's why I'm a huge advocate for survivors in court now. Um, because I feel like they don't do what they say they're supposed to do. If you know, his parole officer would have been checking up on him and looking at his computer and doing the things that he was supposed to be doing, he would have caught this before it happened. And so, or at least at the beginning of it. Right. And so just the whole situation was a really kind of crazy situation. Um, but like I said, I just decided, you know what he, and I, on my news, um, interview, I said, he took my childhood, he took my past, but he will not take my future. And that kind of took a huge blow up of people being like, yes, he took, you know, that's awesome. Like if she, that she said that and this and that, but I really believed it because I was like in my head, you know, in that moment, it just came out. But in my head, I was like, it's true. Like our abusers, the people who hurt us take parts of our lives, take you know, sometimes years, sometimes moments of our lives, but mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it has to be our entire life. And that's what made me kind of want to start candle in a dark room as a foundation and not just a podcast. And so last year after court, um, I applied for it to be a nonprofit. And I said, I got a team together and I just said, we're going to be more than just a podcast. We're going to change. We're going to actually show people that in the darkest of darkness, in the darkest things that you can think of, because I've heard it all doing what I do now, you can still find light. You can still find light within yourself, or you can find light within, within someone else who can help guide you out into the dark, out of the darkness, whatever it is, no matter how dark things may be, no matter the horrible things that have happened to you, you can still live a happy, joyful and light and, you know, a, li a life that is full of light. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, horrible things have happened to me. And it's things that I can't even explain because they're too, you know, intense and things like that. But I try not to focus so much on that anymore. Instead, I use my story as this is, you know, people ask me all the time, how do you do what you do? I hear, I now do with my foundation one-on-one -on -one sessions with people where I do a mix between counseling and um, coaching. And I hear 
stories of tra I have tra I work with trafficking survivors. I work with, you know, a child abuse survivor, other people, you know, one-time rape survivors, whatever the situation is. And I've heard all this horrible things that you could think of. But yes, it's hard. I'm not gonna lie and say this works easy. I definitely have to keep my mindset right and do the work for myself to keep myself in a good headspace. Mm -hmm. But if anything, it fires me up of this is that this was my purpose. My purpose wasn't a podcast. I think it's part of the story, but I think my purpose is to show people that you can still find light and live a happy life after things have happened to you. It takes work. It takes, it's not going to be easy. It's a lifelong commitment, but you can do it. Yes. I have to get up every day and do the, sometimes do the, you know, if I feel triggered, do the tools I've learned and the things I know to help get me through the day. But more times than none, I'm happy. I am happy with my life. I'm happy with my kids. I'm not in fear anymore. And yeah. that's, that's freedom. And now I get to decide what to do with my story. Yes. He took a part of my story, but he doesn't get it right. Get it right. The rest of it. I do. So that's what my purpose with candle dark room is. And now we do, we, our next um, women's retreat is in March. We do um, healing retreats. We do group uh, support groups. I do, like I said, one-on-one -on -one clients. I work with one-on-one -on -one clients. Um, we do, uh, I'm trying to think like, but just so many other things that just offer other like resources, like I said, uh, different types of support groups and things. So people know that they're not alone. Some of it's virtual, some of it's in person. Um, but yeah, we, we do a lot of different things. I, I'm a public speaker. I go and speak to colleges and high schools and, you know, try to tell people like, you're not alone. You can ask for the right help and that you can be rescued from a situation like this. So. So. <laughs> Desi. Oops. Sorry. I want, I brought my ear pod. Okay, go ahead. Desi, there's so much there. Yeah. Uh, first off, that is the quietest I've ever been on this podcast. Um, <laughs> so shout out to you. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I, also, I, 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 mean, I warned you. <laughs> yeah, but at, at the same time, it's, it's not a story that can be interrupted, um, nor should it be. Um, and also, uh, sometimes, you know, what? when we've experienced trauma, when we, when we've gone through hard things, we just need to tell the whole story. Yeah. And then, then we can go back through and kind of pick apart some things or whatnot, but yeah. right. In order, in order for you to get through it, this is, this is how you, well, again, my podcast is four episodes on my podcast. So this yeah. was really making it into something short and it's still not short. <laughs> scratching, scratching the surface of something right. of a life of trauma. Um, yeah. <clears throat> right. Um, and, uh, it's interesting because, you know, we started, uh, the, the, we, we brought up your story on the, uh, on the question of what, what kept you from dreaming about more as a child. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, abuse is, so misunderstood by people who haven't dealt with it. Absolutely. Um, and uh, hearing your story, the way that you told it, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to fathom a, a little girl, a little boy, a little human, not dreaming about something 
Um, right. right? Um, but like, because of what you went through, um, what was there to dream about? Um, and, uh, it's profound hearing, about the the chunks, the spottiness of your memory for all of the different reasons at the various points of your life where it is so uh, choppy and uh, cut up and screwed. Um, and it's, uh, um, it's really, it's really powerful to hear you tell your story. I want to thank you for trusting me, for trusting the people who hear this uh, with your story. Right. It is, it is not a story that, that we need to trust. We don't, we don't have to trust our story with everybody. Um, And you know that because for seven years, you didn't trust anybody with yours. Yeah. Right. Uh, And, and even then, right. It's still, it's still, it still took time to come out. And, and and so it is, um, it's incredible what you have done from what you went through to the work that you are doing now. Uh, and I want to talk about candle in a dark room in, in, in just a second. Uh, <clears throat> because, because the work that you're doing right now is, is really, is really profound when it comes to uh, before we do that, I, I'm curious to hear, you know, a lot of us, a lot of people have met somebody who has gone through abuse um, maybe we, and unbeknownst to us, we may be meeting somebody who is going through abuse. Uh, right. What, what thoughts, advice or tactics or, or whatnot, um, would you ask others to look out for, um, you know, in some of those situations? And, and also I'll ask a two part question. What, you know, that, and then also, um, what's the best way for someone who isn't trained about it, who isn't going and advocating for people in courtrooms, who is just, uh, you know, the, the Mindy's of the world, uh, who don't, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or just, or just trying to be your ride or die and the person that loves you, but doesn't necessarily, I mean, how do, how do you show up for somebody sometimes who's yeah. going through so much? So I'd, I'd be curious to hear okay. your thoughts on that. Yeah. So the first one you said is what to look for. Um, it's hard because there isn't always, major signs but there's a few like for example if it's a child um their behavior of acting out is one um maybe their grades in school not sleeping having nightmares um peeing the bed um anxiety whenever you're you're not home or you come home from work some from somewhere um you know secrets of like feeling like your kids have secrets, but like, can't tell you, like they don't feel comfortable. Um, you know, I'm very open with my kids about what I do and about why I do it. They don't know the details. All they know is that I was hurt as a child. Um, but they know enough of like their boundaries and why it's important to have boundaries for themselves. So I always say to, you know, communication, communication, letting your kids know that you're a safe, your safe place, that they can trust you. If it's happening from your parents, then you find a grandparent, you find a, a, a teacher at school, you find someone, you find that person that you know that's going to help you in some way or another. If you don't have anybody, then you reach out to people like me, reach out to resources like Rain, my, you know, my foundation. There's so many other, you know, foundations and, and resources um, 
for people to be able to call. But that's my biggest thing is, you know, I think for parents to look for is look for signs of, of just your, you can, you know, when something's wrong with your child, my son, something happens at school. As soon as I pick him up, what happened? What'd you get in trouble for? Right? Like, you know, like, you know, their face of something's wrong. Yeah. And my mom looks back now and she's like, now that I realize, like, yeah, there's like, she, I didn't sleep in my room by myself until I was four, 15 years old, 14 years old. I slept in my little brother's room who's three years younger than me. And I would sleep by the wall on our bunk bed on the same, what he would, he, he, we'd only sleep on the bottom and I would sleep by the wall and I would only let him sleep on the side of me because I didn't want John to have access to me on the other side. So I would sleep by the wall. It still never prevented anything, but in my head that felt safer to me. So weird things like that, like my, but like look for, if your kids are, you know, start changing their behavior and those type of things, um, random bruises and marks and just, you know, again, they don't all of a sudden, they don't want to change in front of you. Like your kid, like all of a sudden is being really protective of their private parts and things like that. It's definitely some major signs to look for. Um, and then to be there for people. Biggest thing is to believe them. And I know that sounds so cliche, but it's so big and validating what they're telling you. Even if something seems off to you, that's not your job to figure it out. That's not your job to call them a liar. That's not your job to investigate and to talk to the person that they're blaming. Your job is to protect them. Even if it's just a friend, it's still your job to help that person by helping and figuring out who to, who to report to, who do we go to? How can I be, what do you, what is it that you need? Where, how can I support you? Um, and that's the biggest thing is just asking, like, what is it that you need? If it's a, if it's, a, if you're a, if the person's an adult and they come and tell their friend as their friend, just be like, you know what? I'm so sorry that happened to you. What do you want to do? Do you want me to go with you to report this? Mm -hmm. What is it that you need from me? And something as simple as, as, as that can literally save their life because, you know, I had many times, like I said, when I tried to commit suicide, because I didn't feel like anybody cared. I didn't feel like anyone actually cared about what happened to me. And so I thought that me being out of this world was, was not, you know, would be better for everyone. And that's not the case. And, you know, everybody has a purpose in this world and all they need to be, all they need to hear is that they're validated and that they're worthy and that they're worth helping. And if you are the str stranger to them and you could tell something wrong, be that light, be that light that guides them out of the darkness. And you know, I have a shirt right now that we're selling a sweatshirt and it says be light because you being a light for someone and just letting them know they're not alone, sending them a text message once a day. Hey, how are you doing? Just checking in to see if you're okay. Let me know if you need anything could literally save them from committing suicide can literally save them from taking that bottle of pills. And you have no idea like how many mm. times I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me, and and I I I hope uh, in bringing this up, you 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 hear why I'm bringing it up, not at all to center myself in the conversation, uh, but a, a friend of mine, I, I she was going through a tough time, and and I put a lunch date on our calendar, and not knowing that that would you know be what it was, but like she kind of told me at that lunch date, she's like, you gave me something to look forward to, mm -hmm. um, right? Because I was thinking about hurting yeah. myself, and that you know I was unintentional act of, of a, a yeah. moment there just you know just trying to be a friend um and so I, I don't deserve anything but it but it just goes to show exactly what you're talking about um right. The, you're right the believing the believing in you sounds or believe them sounds so easy yet for some reason it is hard mm -hmm. because oftentimes it's not 
it's not it's it's people we know right you see this with 96 percent of the time yeah 96 percent is people that they know so right and so therefore telling you, you probably yeah. know the person too right and so everybody's like no not so and so they're a good guy no that's not going on no they're all right right and so like i mean i could think about times like that where i haven't been the best advocate when someone told me what was going on i was like nah they yeah. wouldn't do that to you right and like I would love to go back and take some of those moments back of just like, how would the conversation have shifted if I was like, all right, right. that's messed up. Keep talking. Um, right. Yeah. And like, and just in that moment. And so. Uh, and you don't have to be a hero yeah. and go and do you go report it to the police and do the whole big old thing. Like sometimes I get it. It's, not everyone wants to be that hero. And I get that, but just a you listening and saying, I'm so sorry that that happened to you and that you've gone through that could be a life changer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is this is not the moment for us to pull out our natural fixer tendencies. Right. This is the moment for us to hit empathy first and fixing can come along. Uh, but this is and this is this is the thing is that, you know, this is what you described in your situation and and why people close to us are able to do this is the master manipulators. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's one of the worst things that we could do to make somebody else feel like they're the crazy one. Right. Yep. But we see this yep. all the time. Men, men are doing it to women left and right. Right. And, and men are constantly yeah. told or, or constantly tell women that they're crazy um, or that yeah. they're, that they're dramatic, that they're this, you know, when it's, it's an issue, it's sexist. Um, and, right. uh, and, and so um, it is, one of the worst things to tell somebody is that you're the way you're thinking is crazy. You're, you're, well, you're dumb. The thing is, is like, weird. I get like my therapist or my old counselor, school counselor, you know, she's being yeah. a drama queen. Like, yeah, I probably was a drama queen in high in junior high. I was very, you know, I was acting out. I was doing self-destructive behavior. I was doing things, but it's because I was calling for help. And that's what I think the the counselors and people need to understand is, yeah, maybe I was being a drama queen. I was doing those things seeking, you know, doing negative attention seeking, but it's because I needed attention. I needed a call for help. I needed someone to pay attention to me. So if someone's doing that, it's because they need it. They need it for some reason or another. And that's yeah. what I wish people would understand is doesn't mean, yes, I was doing those things, but there's a reason behind it. There's a reason why I was being dramatic. There's a reason why I was doing those. So that's, I think what people need to understand too, is like, Understanding the, the the root of why people do the things they do. Why are kids acting out when they come to school? And why are kids punching other kids at school? Well, maybe because they're seeing it at home, right? Like there's so, there's always the underlying reason and that's what people need to be aware of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the beauty of candle in a dark room. Um, and that's, that's, uh, that's what I want to end on is, 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 is having you tell us a little bit more about candle in a dark room. What, uh, who should be reaching out to you? Is it, is it individuals that potentially have someone that they're worried about and they want to learn, looking for a resource of someone to talk to? Um, or is it just the person who is, uh, receiving the abuse or going through the trauma, right? It's not just a candle in dark room. It's not just a, 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 a trauma based, um, entity, not, not just the sexual violence abuse situation. Right. So no, it. we, we, um, so we actually, what my goal is by the end of 2022. So we actually help not only the survivor, but we help the, um, like the survivor's families. So helping, um, for example, like my mom and my brothers, like we will now offer resources for family members like that because secondary trauma is, is important. It's just as traumatic. And 
My brother lost his dad because he would have did to me. My mom lost her husband and found out horrible things that her husband that she loved and was doing something to her daughter. Like they, you know, my brother, my other brother was being physically abused by him. There's, it's always, there's always some secondary trauma. So we offer resources and support groups and things like that um, to those people as well, including the victim. So our goal for 2022 is to have, a, a, eventually I want to have a one-stop shop, basically was what I like to call it, um, where it's a place that anybody can come in for reporting, for support. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, this just happened to me. What do I do? Okay, let me t- walk you through. Let's go report this together. We'll, you know, we'll send an advocate with you to go report it to the police station, whatever. Um, hey, I, my daughter just came, came up to me yesterday and told me that my boyfriend did this to her. What do I do? Or we just found out my husband did this and he's already in jail, but now she, you know, we're all don't know what to do from here. Okay. Well, we offer support groups and you know what I mean? I want to have a one place where we have all of these resources for anybody to come in and ask for help. Um, so right now I'm, we, we have a few different things that we offer. So again, we offer the podcast, mm-hmm. um, that can be for not only survivors, but it can be for, uh, again, a spouse of a victim, a, a parent of a victim who, you know, for, it's, it's awesome to hear from other point of views, mm-hmm. um, survivor support groups, community and other survivors, um, like supporting one another. So we have like support groups and other things like that. We do meetups, um, one-on-one coaching programs, group coaching courses. We do workshops. Um, again, I, I speak like at events and throw, you know, I'll have speaking panels and stuff for survivors to come to and get information. Um, healing retreats. We do challenges, you know, for families and their kids and for anybody in the public to participate in. Um, but yeah, I want to have this one stop shop basically where we have a crisis intervention team to where let's say the also the police call and they're like hey we just have a a 17 year old girl who was raped and has no family okay I'm sending an I'm sending one of my advocates right now and we show up at the hospital and just hold their hand through the rape crisis the rape kit and hold their let them know that there's you know we're going to help them after they're done leaving the hospital we'll help give them resources then so yeah so we 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 offer a lot of this stuff right now um but eventually I want to have an actual location that people can call and come to instead of, you know, kind of all over just the internet right now. Um, but yeah, we offer lots of different things for just know like there, it's not just about the, the victim. It's not just about the survivor. It's about, it's a whole family dynamic that gets, you know, especially if it's someone in the family that was the abuser. So, um, and then it's you know, for people who don't have any support and don't have family at all, Mm-hmm. We're there for you too to know that you're not alone. We have a community, you know, our last women's retreat, we had 30 something women come and now they're lifelong friends of all around the country of women who can support, send a message in our group message and be like, Hey guys, I was triggered today. I'm really struggling. And yeah. have a group of women be like, Hey girl, you've got this. Like, let's talk, let's do a zoom. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. you have a community of people, men and women to support you. So, you know, you're not alone in those times. Incredible. So. Incredible. Desi, thank you. Uh, Thank (laughs) Thank you you. for uh, the light that you are um, to so many. Uh, And uh, thank you for finding your superpower out of a complete shit show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I always say turn your mess into a message. 
Yeah. You know, it's mm -hmm. important. You can, you can do that. So thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, no, for sure. And yeah. And whatever that message is, right. I mean, just cause you've been through trauma doesn't mean you need to grab a microphone and get on stage in front of everybody, but even just, no, no, even just one other person, right. One other. Yeah. Just, yeah, exactly. It's about um, one other person that you could help. If yep. you could say one life and that's all worth it. Mm -hmm. That's what's that, uh, that, that cliche when a candle lights another candle, doesn't lose any of its flame. Right. Yep, um, exactly. or any of its brightness. And so, yeah, there's, there's a way to do it. Just one person at a time as well. Um, but your story has so much power and we should all share our stories when we're ready and feel safe too. Um, and so thank you for feeling safe and sharing yours with us today, Desi. It means a lot. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a space to share it. And I hope that your listeners can benefit from it as well. You know, I think unfortunately abuse and things like trauma aren't linear and anybody can be affected. And so that's what um, I'm glad that you are welcoming conversations like this. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's so powerful. Um, and stay in touch with me. You know, I know you said you're doing, you're doing more speaking and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I speak, uh, you know, 80 college campuses a year. And so if that's something that oh, I wow. can help you uh, provide your voice to more individuals, please let me know. I would love that. I'm definitely um, trying to get out there more in that college community. So that would be awesome. I'll definitely talk, be in touch. Let's talk, homie. What a great start uh, to what I hope is a really cool working relationship. Desi Garcia, thank you so much for coming into the diner today, my friend. Thank you. It was so great. Thanks so much. Hell yeah. Y'all, that was my time with Desi Garcia. What an incredible human being. What a journey. Uh, hearing someone's story that is so different from your own is often hard to grapple with. And so there's a chance that maybe this one was hard to grapple for you. And that is okay. But it is still important that we believe them. Just like when individuals grow up differently from us because their race was different than us, their sexuality, their uh, ableism, their, their, their abilities, excuse me, right? Like we have to listen to the stories and ask the questions because assuming is easier than learning, but just because it's easier doesn't mean that it is right. And I'm grateful for Desi for being here and sharing us a little bit of how she turned her mess into her message to use her own beautiful words. Uh, thank you so much, Desi, for giving us those tips as well for how we can try to help individuals who may be going through something when we don't even know it. Uh, Y'all, I appreciate you coming through. This was a powerful episode. I was excited to share it with you. Uh, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. You all take care. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. <laughs> if you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, come on now, you're going to make me blush. <laughs> <laughs> also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, while we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.